Good afternoon. We are certainly delighted that you're with us today. Uh, what, a, what a joy to watch our brother Andrew Thomas be baptized today. Uh, it, it certainly um, was, was, a, was a joy to watch. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 today, just two verses, and uh, they're packed. There's certainly a lot of uh, material in two verses to, to, to look at. Uh, the verses are short, but the content is rich. Let me read those verses, and then um, I'll pray again for the preaching of the Word, and we'll dive right in. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters, in all purity. Let me pray. Father, help us today. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we ask that your gospel come not only in words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a little bit of bad news. Um, this week's sermon will not have an English accent. Uh, it was a joy to listen to David, not because of his accent, though that was certainly fun. Uh, I know my girls in particular, uh, they, they wanted him to, to say Peter uh, with that English accent. I'm not going to try to do it now. Um, but as Tommy alluded, what, 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 wonderful, um, what a wonderful charge for us uh, to be reminded that the best is yet to come. And that certainly is the case, even as we look at a text like today, where Paul is given instruction to Timothy to pastor this church in Ephesus, to care for these saints there. And in his attempt to do that, as Paul writes to young Timothy, he gives instruction to Timothy as a pastor, but today there's really a transition in this letter. The first four chapters were really heavy in content directly to Timothy. The whole letter's written to him, but a lot of what takes place, commentators would agree, in the remainder of this letter to Timothy uh, apply to the church in general, and that's where we'll begin, to get, begin today. Here, here's the focus. Here's where we want to aim uh, in today's sermon. The gospel is both the means and the motive by which we relate to one another as a family within the church. Let me repeat that. The gospel is both the means and the motive by which we relate to one another as a family within the church. Most of the church probably already knows that Jordan's wife, Tracy, and I are first cousins. Our dads are brothers. One of them prayed this afternoon. You may also know that Kelly Algie and my wife are sisters. 
Perhaps you know that Mitch and Laura Donovan are April's parents. Same is true for Tim and Pam, their son Jeff. On the back row today are sisters, Laura Donovan and Linda Moore. Ronnie Smith is my older brother. Miss Debbie is Jordan's mom. These are familial ties in the life of this church. There are those who may not know, but in our history, we've had even more. Maybe you don't know that Gracie Pena and Katie Pugh are both daughters of Byron and Becca Russell. There's all kinds of family ties, and perhaps I even miss some. Maybe I don't know them all. Or maybe I just missed when I was putting this list together earlier this morning. I would presume that there will be marriages that are going to take place from members within this church congregation. It's happened before. The Nashes, the Baileys were members here before they were married. And I'm not about to try to play matchmaker this morning, predict who the future ones might be, but I anticipate that that'll happen. But did you know that Rick Couples is Charles Foster's father? Did you know that Shannon Jarvis is M.C. Schweer's mother? That Daniel Mills and Latrell Horton are brothers? That Joy Campati and Renee Doss are sisters? That Mike Packard and Joel Minton are brothers? That Kelly Audgey and Emily Dunaway are sisters? Eric Bieber and Jasmine Harris are siblings? Kachi Akalam and Beulah Bali are siblings. Today's text is about relationships, about healthy relationships, about spiritual relationships. Today's text, I said earlier, transitions in Paul's letter from being purely written to this young pastor, Timothy, to really providing instruction to the church as a whole. Instruction that Timothy was to relay to the congregation. And I certainly believe that, that Timothy's still receiving pastoral instruction from Paul, even in this portion of the letter. But the writings are very much applicable to every person in the room. Today's text, two verses, is direct and simple. It's concerned with how we within the church relate to one another. So again, our aim is to examine ourselves to see if both the motive and means by which we relate to one another is rooted in the gospel. So the question that we must first answer before we dive heavy into the text is this, how is the gospel at the root of what is being communicated in these two verses? How is the gospel at the root of these two verses? Well, I believe to answer that, all we have to do is look back just a handful of verses into chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. See, Paul says that 
this is about service to Christ Jesus, about being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine. In other words, this is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel is not good doctrine, I don't know what is. If the words of faith that Paul refers to in 1 Timothy 4, 6 aren't the gospel, then I don't know what the gospel is. What are the words of faith that Paul speaks here? What is the good doctrine that he refers to? It's the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the grave. Eternally triumph over sin and death so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in Him, but rather have been promised everlasting joy in Christ. That's the gospel that Paul's referring to when he says good doctrine or words of faith. And he says at the end of that verse, chapter 4, verse 6, that you have followed. See, what you believe produces fruit. What you believe produces actions. Your actions follow what you believe. What you say and do reflects what you believe in your heart. Believing the gospel necessarily causes you to act a certain way or to say, the, to say it the way the text expresses today. Believing the gospel necessarily affects the way that you relate to others. Just a few verses later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, text that we just recently looked at, it says this, For to this end, listen to these verbs, we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Because of what we believe, according to 1 Timothy 4.10, we strive and toil. It causes us to do something. Our faith must have action. And again, in verses 15 and 16 of this chapter that lead up to our text today, it says this, verse 15 of chapter 4, practice these things, devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I know you can't miss all the verbs that you see there in the text. Look at the action that is caused by faith. Faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. Practice, put into action what you believe, he says in verse 15. Persist, for by so doing, there, there's an active work in doing something as a result in what we believe. The good effects of the gospel on our lives govern the way that we act towards one another. The gospel believed affects relationships. It changes relationships. And in today's text, there are two ways that I've already mentioned the gospel of Jesus Christ affects our relationships within the church. The gospel affects both the means in which we relate to one another and the motive by which we relate to one another. And that's what we want to look at today. So look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. The text says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, 
to the younger men as brothers. To state this first point simply, it's right there in the text, we should appeal to one another. We should appeal to one another, but let's investigate the details of the words written here a little more carefully so that we can arrive at that point. If we're not to sharply rebuke, as the New American Standard reads, then there must be another way. And the way, according to Paul, is by making an appeal. We are to uh, appeal to one another. Well, we want to deal with this word rebuke so that we understand what is meant by the converse of that, to appeal. To suggest the word rebuke means that there will be times when it's necessary to address a problem. The church is certainly not exempt from problems. Paul, in pretty much every one of his letters that he writes, is dealing with problems. And if you've been at Grace Church for very long, you know that we have tons of them. And we not only have problems, but we have difficult problems. Church life is not easy. But not addressing problems leads to bigger problems. There are a lot of ineffective churches in the world today because they did not address problems that existed within the church. One of the problems is churches are full of sinners. Sinners redeemed by the blood of Jesus, by His grace, but still capable of sinning. We all are battling the flesh. My flesh wants to act out all the time. Whether it's a sharp, quick tongue or a sudden burst of unhealthy emotions or going back to some old habitual sin, my flesh tries to act out. And I'll be honest, I know I need to be rebuked sometimes. It's true. Addressing one another's sins is hard work. Addressing others' sins can be, in and of itself, pridefully sinful, downright hypocritical. So how do we get there? Perhaps we're familiar with verses like Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And if that warning wasn't enough, maybe Luke 6, 37 comes to mind. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. But the point of those verses in Matthew chapter 7 and Luke 6 is not to ignore others' sin, but to carefully watch your own life, just as Paul has communicated to Timothy in the previous chapter of this pastoral letter that we're studying now. As a matter of fact, in this same chapter, chapter 5, Paul says in verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Sin must be rebuked. Again, as difficult as addressing problems in the life of the church may be, it is good work and it's necessary work for truly healthy churches. The point Paul is making is is not making a case for ignoring sin, but rather the means by which we address it. Both the New American Standard, the, the New Living Translation, and the NIV all attach a word to rebuke here in verse 1. 
It's the word harshly. So if you're reading from one of those, New American Standard, New Living Translation, uh, excuse me, New Living Translation or the NIV, they all are going to attach the word harshly to the text. But if you're looking at the ESV or King James, New King James, you're not going to find the word harshly in your text. That's because the word harshly is not there in the Greek. However, let me explain why I think this is appropriately inserted in the New American Standard which I'm using today. The Greek word here for rebuke found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 is only used one time in the entirety of the Bible. The usual Greek word in the Bible for rebuke is found 20 times, including this chapter that I read just a minute ago in verse 20. The point I'm trying to draw out is this Greek word for rebuke carries a severity that I think warrants the addition of harshly. Donald Guthrie says the word used here means to censure severely, to express severe disapproval. And Robert Yarbrough, another commentator, says the word means to revile, to criticize in an abusive manner, angrily insult. So what Paul's trying to say is how we address the sin of other believers communicates a lot about what we believe about the gospel ourselves. Should we address sin? Yes, we can't ignore it. That creates bigger problems, more problems. But in our addressing it, we certainly want to heed the wisdom that Matthew 7, 5 gives us in Luke 6, 37. We need to be careful about our judging, knowing that we'll be judged, and we most certainly should remove the log from our own eye. But God has not called us to ignore one another's sins. But how we address those sins communicates what we believe about the gospel. It says, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him. I don't know about you, but I'm helped by the language used here. I'm always helped by being spoon-fed by Paul. I love the do not, but rather. I don't know about you, but I never appreciated being told, don't do that. From the time I was a little kid to now, I still don't appreciate that phrase. Don't do that. Or don't do it that way. Without something being accompanied to that statement, don't do that, but rather you ought to do this instead. Now that's helpful. Don't just tell me what I'm doing wrong, but help me to know how to do it right. Here, Paul expresses the gospel means by which we are to address or to confront one another. I'm always helped by reading multiple translations. The New American Standard says appeal, but rather appeal. The King James Version, entreat. New International Version, to exhort. The ESV says encourage. And I love the New Living Translation, appeal respectfully. Right, there's this respect that's being communicated in the spirit of the text. We don't address people harshly because I believe that shifts the emphasis of the address onto the wrong authority. See, when I come at you harshly, what I'm doing is creating fear of me. But when I come at you with an appeal, when I come at you gently with God's word, then he's the authority. 
The person receiving the harsh rebuke from another man will be made to feel inferior or attacked. But a person receiving an appeal from a brother on the basis of God's word, well, that's entirely different. Harshness is born out of insecurity. We become harsh when we're insecure. We become harsh when we have an inflated self-importance. We become harsh when we're defensive. But a humble appeal to another brother is rooted in the authority of God's word. Brother, based on God's word, I'm appealing to you. That's a different approach. When we rebuke others harshly, we are sinning in anger, even if you think you're motivated righteously. I believe our understanding of the gospel informs our approach to addressing one another, to addressing sinful issues in the life of the church. The gospel acknowledges the authority of God. The gospel informs the grace and mercy that has been extended to us. The gospel reminds us of what we deserve, yet what we have received. The gospel is kind, tolerant, and patient, which leads us to repentance. That's what the gospel does. So when we address others' sin by the same means that God has addressed our own, we realize the gospel causes us to make an appeal in the same manner that the gospel appealed to our own heart. We realize that the gospel appeal that we make to other brothers is the only means by which we can address the sin of others. If we want others to repent, truly repent, then we come to them with the gospel. We come to them with gospel appeals, not harsh rebukes. I want you to see a brief example of such loving gospel appeal from Paul to a couple of saints in Philippi. Normally, I don't make you bounce around the text, but I want you to turn to Philippians chapter four to see a couple of verses there. As Paul writes to this church in Philippi, they got all kinds of things going on. We're going to Leave Ephesus for a minute, and we're going to skip over to Philippi. The church there in Philippi had all kinds of things. They were being pressured from the outside, literally persecuted, life on the line. Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel, but they have trouble within. They're wrestling with Judaizers who are trying to uh, tell new believers that they have to be circumcised. Paul rebukes them for that. But they also have issues, even, when the li- even within the life of the church, where faithful, gospel-proclaiming believers are having conflict with one another. And that's what we find in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2 and looking at verse 3. It says this, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, that's who Paul's writing to here. He says, I ask you also, help these women. Now listen to this description of them. These two ladies who are having conflict. Help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, as well, as the, as well as the rest of the fellow workers or my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Now, this is what he says about Euodia and Syntyche. Their names are written in the book of life. These are genuine believers. Your name doesn't get there unless you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. And it says that they are fellow workers. They are laboring for the sake of the gospel. It's true of them. And Paul says about them that they shared his struggle, like they were willing to endure difficulties for the sake of the gospel. These are some faithful women. And yet, 
we find in Philippians chapter 4, there's this conflict that hasn't been resolved between two godly women. Imagine that. And here Paul is making this gospel appeal. Look at how Paul makes his appeal. He says, I urge you to live in harmony. He doesn't come guns blazing, but he makes this appeal. As a matter of fact, um, my version, the, the New American Standard says urge, but other translations use the word appeal here. I appeal to Euodia and I appeal to Syntyche. He's appealing to them. And not just with one another, but he says with one another, look at the phrase that Paul uses, in the Lord. He brings the gospel into the dispute. He says, you have conflict with you, but you need to have harmony with one another in the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. Where's the Lord fit into this conflict? How can two godly women who have suffered for the sake of the gospel be at conflict with one another? If the Lord is the Lord of both of them, and he is. He is appealing to their understanding of the gospel. He's saying to them, consider Christ. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us in Philippians what the issue was. We're not given the conflict. We don't need to know it. We just know that they were, that there was a conflict. But here's what we do know. Paul is saying to them, consider Christ. Consider the gospel. Consider the gospel hindering effects of your dispute, dispute in the life of this church. Dear saints, Let's follow Paul's example and exhortation to address one another by gospel means. To bring the gospel into conflict, into confrontation, into addressing sin. I do want to make a note of one more thing before we push forward in the text. The text specifically says here in verse 1, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's talking to Timothy about how he addresses older men. And though making a gospel appeal should be extended to all saints, and I certainly think it's applicable here, it's very easy to see that he's talking about four people groups when he talks about making this appeal. But this text is particularly interested in the correction made from a younger pastor like Timothy to an older saint. And this is the note that I want to make. We should... Never rebuke anyone harshly, but especially those advanced in years should be treated with more respect, should be spared from such treatment. Every age is capable of sin, and therefore confrontation is required. But the manner in which we dress that sin, it matters. The means by which we do it. And Paul's appeal to us is that we would appeal to others. If correction is necessary, we are to exhort one another through a gospel appeal. Well, I want you to see these four groups briefly that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, don't rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. And then he mentions the second group, to younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters. The Greek word here used for older man is the same that is used to describe the church office of an elder. But he's not speaking about how we address pastors in this text. Paul certainly has age groups in mind here. And like so many other places in Scripture, 
We're not given an exact age to determine which group we might be categorized. At what age do we address someone as an older person? Perhaps the easiest way to this approach, excuse me, to approach this is to relate to others as you would your own parents, peers, and children. If the saints in the church, this is my approach, are my parents' generation, then I regard them as fathers and mothers. If they are my peers, I regard them as brothers and sisters. If they are from the generation below me, my children's age range, I try to relate to them as if I am their father. I always appreciated my good friend Tyler Upchurch. Some of y'all know him. He was a member here for a while. Because while he was a member here at Grace Church, he always addressed my wife as Sister Angie. I loved it. I appreciated it. I don't know if you know it, but we've already been discipled this morning. Tommy, while he was given announcements, said Sister Tracy Thomas. Pastor Nathan, when he patted Andrew, he said my brother, right? These familial relationships. And God certainly has instruction for us in how we are to understand these relationships. Healthy relationships within the church are approached as familial because Christ has united us into one body. There's a lot of language, a lot of analogies that we find in the New Testament to describe the church. In Ephesians, we see that the church is referenced as a body made up of many parts. Or a little bit later in the book of Ephesians, we know that Marriage is used to help us get a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. So we have these analogies, but here Paul digs in in 1 Timothy chapter 5 to the family analogy. We are a family because of the gospel. To not act as family toward one another is to exclude the gospel from our relationships. Brothers, consider your relationships to ladies in the life of this church. Are you relating to the older women as mothers? Do you view the younger ladies as sisters? And sisters, consider your relationship to the men of this church. Are you relating to the older men as fathers? And do you view the younger men as brothers? Let me ask some application type questions. Men, who would you say is your spiritual father? Who has invested in you spiritually? And ladies, who would you say is your spiritual mother? Men, are you discipling a younger brother in the life of this church? You ought to be. Think about the good gospel implications of such. I loved Andrew's testimony because it acknowledged along the way where men had invested in him. It had gospel effect. Ladies, which young woman are you pouring into? What gospel opportunity awaits by doing so? I love Paul's drawing, drawing out these relationships because he extends your gospel responsibility outside of your home. I'm not negating the home. I think that's primary. Like, if you're not going to disciple your own family, then you really have no business discipling people outside your home, but 
Paul is certainly thinking outside the home here. He's looking at the church, the congregation, and he calls them a family. Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Absolutely, but there's more. We have a spiritual family that Paul's just not going to let us ignore. Build relationships with your gospel family. Well, I said there were two things that I wanted us to drill in on. The means by which we relate to one another and the motive. We find the motive in the second verse. The older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters, and then he says three little words at the end of verse 2, in all purity, or with all purity, depending on what version you're looking at. So I want to conclude by looking at the gospel motive mentioned in the final phrase of these two verses, in all purity. Most commentators will assign those three little words to our relationship to the final group that Paul mentions. It makes good sense that Paul would say to young Timothy, relate to the young women as sisters in all purity or with all purity. I love it. The NIV adds the word absolute purity. It's non-negotiable. The gospel demands it. Perhaps there are multiple godly young women at Ephesus that Timothy would have been tempted as a young man to relate to in a manner that's not gospel-oriented. Paul adds the phrase, in all purity, to add weight, the weight of gospel intent. The standard here is not about moralism, it's gospel motivation. Our thoughts ought to be in keeping with how a young man would consider his sister, or perhaps even as we might consider our own daughters. My motive, my motive in relating to my own daughters is loaded with gospel hope. I hope that my girls would say, my dad wants me to be saved. I know that I'm certainly thinking in my own home, what can I do to invest in my children spiritually? What moments, what opportunities, what conversations can, can I seize to weave in gospel truth? What life circumstances can I take my daughters, put my arm around them and say, this is what the gospel says. This is how the gospel informs this decision that you're about to make. I think that way as a father because I desire very much that my daughters come to faith in Christ. How can I weave gospel instruction into the life of young ones. I should be looking for opportunities to relate to my daughters in such gospel-enriching ways. Any other motive runs the risk of being ineffective, falling short, not gospel-related. And so if I think about the way that I want to shepherd my own daughters, I ought to relate to every lady in the church the same way. How can I invest the gospel? into their life. And that's the way we ought to approach every relationship. Yes, I do think those three words in all purity are primarily aimed at how young Timothy would relate to the younger women in the life of the church, but it certainly applies in every direction to every one of those groups. We ought to be relating in gospel purity. 
All of my dealings with the saints of this church should have gospel investment in mind. How am I gospeling the older men of this church? How am I gospeling the younger men of this church? How am I gospeling the older women of this church? How am I gospeling the younger women of this church? Is it in all gospel purity? I have to ask. I love what James says. Chapter 1, verse 27. Pure, pure. So think in all purity. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. To give attention to this people group that he mentions. James says pure religion is to look after the orphans and widows in their distress. Pure motives are to consider others from a gospel perspective. Pure motives are gospel motives. So again, he gets back to the gospel, the means and the motive for how we relate to one another as a spiritual family always has to be the gospel. So let's conclude with some more questions to help us consider how we apply. Are we building a gospel culture of honor at Grace Church? Do we honor one another? Are we building a gospel culture of honor? Or to ask it on the individual level, is that how you relate to the other saints of Grace Church? Do you believe the gospel informs how we relate to others in this church? Do you believe that the death of our humble Savior, Jesus Christ, advises how we should treat others? Do you believe the victorious resurrection encourages us to appeal to one another? Perhaps we should ask the question proactively. I'll ask again, are you discipling others in the life of this church with the gospel? Are you relating to anyone else in the life of this church according to the gospel? Who are you pouring into outside of your home? Or to ask the question reactively, we might ask, do we have problems? Yes. Am I encouraging others to live by a gospel standard laid out for us in the Bible? I should be. Perhaps our church covenant would help in considering this. Isn't that how we ought to interact with one another? Isn't that what we agreed to? My appeal to you, Grace Church, is that you appeal to your church family with pure gospel motives to be like Christ. Let's pray together. Father, two verses that are plain, direct, simple. Father, I pray that you would help us to truly examine our hearts in this moment. Whether we're motivated by the gospel in our relationships with 
the saints of this church. Lord, help us. We certainly need to be motivated by that gospel. Father, I pray that you would make us courageous confronters of sin. But Father, that we would do so by appealing from your word and the truth of the gospel. And Father, I can't help but desire to pray this afternoon for the sake of the gospel. That if there are any present today who don't understand how to relate to others because they have not yet put their faith in the reality, the truth of that gospel. Father, I pray that the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection victorious over that sin and death. Father, I pray that their hope would be put in that gospel. And Father, we ask that you would continue to sanctify this body of believers by your gospel grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.